I read about a truck driver who dropped in at an all-night restaurant in Nebraska. The waitress had just served him when three cocky, <laughs> leather-jacketed motorcyclists of the Hell's Angels type came over to him. Uh, one took his hamburger, <laughs> another a fistful of fries, and a third began to drink his coffee. Surprisingly, the man did not respond, but quietly got up, took his check, went over to the cash register, laid both the check and the money on the register, and quietly departed. The waitress came and took the money, put it in the register, and then walked over to the window to watch the truck driver go away into the night. After the waitress walked back from the window to the table, one of the cyclists said to her, he wasn't much of a man, was he? The waitress said, I'm not too sure if he was much of a man, but he's not much of a driver. He just rode over three motorcycles on his way out. <laughs> the truck driver wasn't as long-suffering as he appeared to be. In Exodus chapter 34, and if you would turn there, in verse 6, we read that our God is long-suffering. So two questions for you as you're turning to Exodus chapter 34. Number one, what does it mean that God is long-suffering? As we're looking at this fifth communicable attribute of God, what does it mean that God is long-suffering? And then number two, how are we to imitate this characteristic of God. Join me in Exodus 34. Let me read to you verses 5 and 6. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Join me as I Pray to the God who is long-suffering. Father, we thank you for our continued study in the communicable attributes of God. Thank you for those attributes that belong to you that you share with us. Help us to learn much today about your long-suffering and what we should do as a result. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, to pick up the uh, context, you just simply need to flip back to Exodus chapter 32 and the incident of the golden calf. Uh, down in verse 7, this is Exodus 32. Let me walk you through verses 7 to 11, but let me ask you this question first. Have you ever watched individuals who are watching a tennis match. Not watching the match itself, but watching the individuals across the court watching the tennis match. It's like the head goes one way and it goes back. It goes one way, it goes back. Let me uh, show you how this applies to Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down. Moses was up receiving the law for your people. Notice that. Uh, you might want to circle or highlight that, your people, and God says, whom you, notice God seems to be denying his own people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way in which I commanded them. 
They have made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, pick it up in verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against, notice now what Moses does, your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. I find it intriguing. God sort of denies his people, and Moses brings it back to God. This is your people. Now, down in verse 14, because what did Moses do? You know, he has to intercede in behalf of the people. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to, and you might want to highlight this, his people. He's back to ownership, per se. And this is what Moses was turning to God for. With this in mind, let me give to you our first point. God is long-suffering towards you. How beautiful that is. God is long-suffering toward you. Let's learn more about the nature of our long-suffering God and how he had to endure the Israelites based upon his long-suffering nature. Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So we have the dispatch, one Israelite from each tribe. So you'd have 12 spies going to see what the land is like. And what report do they bring back? Down in verse 25, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So far, so good. But the first word in verse 28, nevertheless, from the Hebrew is a strong adversative, a strong contrast that implies, and listen carefully, limitation. So we have a strong contrast. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw, and you might want to observe here, we're back to sight, we saw the descendants of Anak there. <laughs> they saw the giants. So what's the limitation? God, you're not that great. God, you're not that powerful to conquer these giants and bring us into the promised land. 
That's what they're expressing at this point. So God goes, enough of this. Let me just wipe them all out. <laughs> How patient God has been in this process. Verse 11, now in chapter 14 of Numbers, then the Lord said to Moses, and observe the words, how long? They occur twice. How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them. These individuals saw the Red Sea part. They observed God's powers over the Egyptian so-called gods with the 10 plagues. They saw so much, and yet they still did not believe, and they're rejecting the Lord. So what can Moses do? He goes to prayer. And Moses said to the Lord, this is now verse 13 of the same chapter, then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which you have heard of, your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which we swore to give them. Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, now observe how Moses appeals to God in verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering. See, Moses says, God, I know your nature. You are a long-suffering God, and I'm appealing to you. Then the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty. Moses wisely appeals to the character of God being long-suffering. So what does the Lord do? Chapter 14, now down to verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Moses appeals to God based on who God is, his long-suffering nature, and God does not obliterate the people. Long-suffering. Moses knew his God. Moses understood his character and would make an appeal based upon that character. Let's look at another aspect of God's long-suffering, this time from the New Testament book of 2 Peter. Go way into the New Testament, past Hebrews, past James, past 1 Peter, over to 2 Peter, and we'll pick up with the context of the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In essence, the scoffers in Peter's day, 
Jesus hasn't returned. It's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. And they mock and they scoff. And this is what Peter is picking up on. Now down to verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. Now it's important when an apostle says one thing. Uh, Paul had done the same in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 13, he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are past. Paul said, hey, listen, Philippians, we've all had a past. Paul himself persecuted the church. We need to move on past that. Different set of circumstances here. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Oh, how this has been blown up eschatologically, how people have abused the context. Very simply stated, God is timeless. He is not subject to time. He is patient for a purpose because he is not limited like we are. Notice in verse 9, the Lord is not slack, to be slow, to delay, to be tardy. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What about coming back? As some count slackness, but is, and catch the expression, is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back? He's patiently waiting for more people to be saved. There will be a timing. It won't last forever, but there's a long-suffering component to the Lord who desires not some, but all people to be saved. And then notice in verse 10, because that time will end, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So God's long suffering will go for an extended period of time. As Peter wrote this, it had been now from that time to us, 2,000 years. That's a long time. And from Peter, he's pointing out to his generation, just because the Lord did not immediately come back doesn't mean he's not coming back. And the same is true for you and me. Jesus desires all people to be saved. So the long suffering is extended. And by the way, isn't Paul himself an example of the long suffering of God? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 115, that he's the chief of sinners, why he formerly persecuted the church. He writes in verse 16, however, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Was not our Lord long suffering towards Saul that turns him into Paul? the greatest missionary who ever walked upon planet Earth. So number one, God is long-suffering toward you. What's your part? Number two, be long-suffering toward others. Be long-suffering toward 
others. You know, as we look at the nature of God, we know God is love. That's 1 John 4 8. God's love is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we learn in verse 4 a characteristic of love. Love suffers long and simultaneously is kind. God endures a lot and also demonstrates his kindness as he is expressing his long-suffering to people. So be long-suffering towards others. Why? It's a characteristic of love, but also it's produced by the Holy Spirit. As you and I seek to be obedient children of God, as we go to the Word and desire that the Word of God be obeyed, the Spirit of God produces fruitfulness in our lives. We call it the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. One of the fruit mentioned there is none other than long-suffering. And may I say that we need to also be long-suffering toward others because it promotes unity in the body of Christ. It promotes unity in the body of Christ. We're going to leave Peter and go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We're blessed, children of God. In 1-3 of the same book, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Positionally, we're seated with Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 2-6 says. You've been raised up together, and you sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in chapters 1 through 3, we understand our position, our placement in Jesus Christ. But then as you transition over to chapter 4 from 4 to 6, there needs to be a practice. You have this heavenly seating arrangement that all that Jesus Christ is blessed with, so are we, Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. And now as a result of that, We need to be individuals who put into practice what we have learned. One of the things we need to model is a unity in the body of Christ. And that's going to take long suffering toward other individuals because Jesus is patient with us as he was patient with Saul to become Paul, if you will. He is patient with you and me and all those in the body of Christ. So here is Paul, between AD 60-62, writing one of the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and where is he? He's a prisoner of Rome. Well, not really, although Rome has him in chains. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, with gentleness, with what? Long-suffering. We need to be people that understand how our God is long-suffering toward us, and now we need to do the same toward them. With long-suffering, bearing with whom? One another. That's the body of Christ in love, endeavoring. We need to earnestly be seeking to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, in verses 4 through 6, you might want to underline the seven uses of the word one. See, the whole concept of unity. As we are long-suffering 
with each other. There is a oneness, there's a unity that comes into our lives in the body of Christ. Notice here, beginning in verse 4, there is one body, that's the body of Christ, but notice the word one, and then for the second time there is one, one what? One spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Uh, I believe the hope is pointing us in the direction of Jesus's return. Notice as well, he goes on to say, there is one Lord, that's our fourth use of one. There is one faith. There is one baptism. And in number seven, one God and Father of all, who is above all and in you all. The unity of the Trinity is to be exemplified in the body of Christ. So we understand that we are to be long-suffering toward others, and that it promotes unity in the body of Christ. It also produces fruit. Fruit. Turn with me now, moving to your right, over to the book of Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's pick it up in verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Notice in verse 10, this is a a reference I use often when I'm writing a thank you note to someone, expressing my appreciation of that individual having done something for another, to remind that person that even when you're giving a cup of cold water to an individual, for Jesus' sake, you're rewarded. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor. See, that's laboring to the point of exhaustion and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, see, in the past, and do minister. It continues. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that takes long suffering, by the way, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and what? Our translation gives us patience, but it's macrothumia, it's long suffering. Faith and long suffering, and what do we do? We inherit the promises. They're coming, but there needs to be a long suffering toward one another until we get there. An example, look at verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently, catch it, endured. That's the word for long-suffering. After he had exhibited long-suffering, he obtained the promise. You see what happens? There's an inheritance that's coming our way, but we need to be long-suffering. We need to be patient. A common sight in America's Southwest is the century plant. It's truly unique. The century plant thrives in rocky, mountainous desert sites. Uh, It is amazing to observe. It has dramatic leaves that grow up to a foot wide. The plant can reach 12 foot in diameter. But what makes the century plant unusual, as its name suggests, 
is this reproduction cycle. For 20 or 30 years, not 100, but for 20 or 30 years, the six-foot-tall plant stands the same height and puts out no flowers. Then one year without warning, a new bud sprouts. The bud, which resembles a tree trunk-sized asparagus spear, shoot into the sky at a fantastic rate of seven inches per day and reaches an eventual height of 20 to 40 feet. Then it crowns itself with several clumps of yellowish blossom that last up to three weeks. See, it takes time and then comes the fruitfulness. Same is true of us. This is why Paul commands the Thessalonian saints in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, be patient with all. See, when we're patient, the fruitfulness comes. Story of Abraham Lincoln, and that no one treated him with more contempt than Edwin Stanton. Edwin Stanton, who denounced Lincoln's policies and called him, and notice the expression, a low, cunning clown. Stanton nicknamed him the original gorilla and said that an explorer would be a fool to wander about in Africa trying to capture a gorilla when he could have found one so easily in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln said nothing in reply. In fact, he made Stanton his war minister because Stanton was the best qualified for the job. Lincoln extended every courtesy to Stanton. The years went by, and then one night at Ford's Theater, Lincoln took that fatal bullet to the head and died. They put his body in a secondary room, and there stood Stanton weeping as he looked down on the silent rugged face of the president he said with tears streaming there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen lincoln's long suffering conquered stanton in the end and thus it will be true for you and me uh we are short fused we we tend to fly off the handle quickly so child of god we need to ponder long and hard the nature of our god if you'll contemplate how patient he had been to the nation israel and then if you will take time and ponder how long suffering he had been with you even before you came to faith. And then subsequently, he has been remarkably patient. That's the nature of our God. He didn't obliterate the Israelites. The nation exists to this day. He does not wipe out the church of Jesus Christ. It can be such a disgusting sight in his eyes at time when we practice carnality. He is long-suffering to each and every one of us as he was to Paul to lead him to salvation. 
He is long-suffering toward each and every saint, desiring them to grow spiritually, and even in his lack of a quick return. It's been 2,000 years, child of God. All of this, why? Resembling the nature of his long-suffering. It's one thing to ponder, to meditate, to ruminate, to consider the long-suffering of our God, but it's another thing to imitate him. And the command was clear. I gave it to you in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Be patient with some, be patient with most. No, be patient with all. That's the command in our second point. Be long-suffering toward others. As you ponder how long-suffering God has been with you, if you consider his patience with us individually, then it will help you to consider how you need to be patient towards others. That's love, is it not? Love suffers long, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, and is kind. You and I need to be God's lights to this lost world. We need to let our light shine brightly that men might see what are good works and how do we demonstrate them by being long-suffering to an unsaved world and even to one another in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your nature. You truly are holy. You are good. You are gracious. You are merciful. And yes, you are long-suffering. Help us to think on that often. And then, Father, may we not be content just to consider how you are long-suffering, but then to imitate that because you have implanted your spirit within us so that we could have that fruit of the spirit of long-suffering to imitate your son, to be that kind of person that will be faithful with long-suffering until the end so we can bear the fruit in our lives and in others and have great rewards in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for what we've learned today. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching today's sermon. Uh, there is a book that is the basis for the 14 lessons, Attributes of God on Fire. Uh, there are actually 10 other fire books where so you can learn more about us at comermanorbiblechurch.com. And then I have a foundation, Ken J. Bird Senior Foundation.com. And finally, we have a father and son podcast. We would love to have you join us. God bless you.